You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who were at one point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, desperately seeking your approval from Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin calling in from Austin, Texas. And this is Wes Owen in Boston, Massachusetts. Our question for number 11 is, what is all this morality stuff about anyway? Featuring Friedrich Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals. And some chapters, like chapters 1 and 5, say, of Beyond Good and Evil. You can find online versions of those texts linked from our blog, partiallyexaminedlife.com. As well, you will also find many other fascinating things, like a way to discuss what you hear, some movie reviews or book reviews, some other awesome stuff that was not there before, and t-shirts. Here are the ground rules we've been giving ourselves for these discussions. Number one, we do not assume that our audience knows anything about any of this. And I'll give some caveats there that you might want to go listen to our episode zero on the website to really explain that we do sometimes refer to past episodes, but we'll try not to be too obnoxious about it. I would say for this particular episode too, I'd recommend listening to the previous two episodes since this is the third in a series of three on ethics and morality. But this one will be so much better than those. And those were very, very long, both of them. That is true. This one's going to kick ass. (laughs) Listen Listen to the first 15 minutes of each of those other episodes. <laughs> or the last 15 minutes, maybe. Actually, that's probably true, because the first 15 minutes of the previous one, we just talked to Phil the whole time. Number two, no gratuitous name dropping. We're interested in ideas, not with fetishizing a bunch of dead philosophers. If you have a point to make, just make it. Don't say, you would know what I'm talking about if you had read that series of articles by Mahatma Gandhi in Cat Fancy magazine. number three we shall be rigorous and exact in all that we say except in the case we're not doing so seemed like it would be more entertaining there so Nietzsche Friedrich Fred so I want to take the opportunity to say thanks again to Mark for bringing us back so to speak or as awakening me from my non-dogmatic slumber (laughs) and getting us back into reading these texts because although I have enjoyed Partially. (laughs) Partially dogmatic slumber. (laughs) Partially non-dogmatic slumber. Because even though I have enjoyed reading the other texts, and particularly the discussions we've had, I feel as though the last time I read Nietzsche seriously was when I was an undergraduate, and I read it like an undergraduate. And I did not really respect, I think, some of the profound insights that he had to offer versus a lot of the Uh cleverness that hides those in his aphoristic style. And of course, all the things that attract undergraduates, like the funny stuff about making fun of other philosophers and societal figures and women and things like that. So uh, thank you. Thank you, because I really, really was amazed when I was reading this text again. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you, Seth, for participating. And thank you, Wes, for being Wes. And thank you, (laughs) Phil, and the listeners. (laughs) I truly feel as though I rediscovered the text this time. I felt like I was reading something completely different and certainly something different than what I remembered. Very nice. Yes, it's been about a month since our last recording, and I took that opportunity to completely immerse myself in this stuff and uh, read all the genealogy and read uh, uh, a lot of Beyond Good and Evil, but also dipped into online versions of some of his older books like The Dawn, Human All Too Human, reading pieces of that, looking for the ethics bits. Because it's kind of hard to figure out exactly what he thinks about some things. It's easy to get his critiques of things, what he doesn't like. But when he says what he likes, uh, you know, how serious is he being at any given point? It's hard to tell. 
right? What about you, Wes? The UT, I started out in ancient philosophy, and uh, I was also into 19th century Germans, Kant especially. And uh, by the time I graduated, I wrote my master's thesis on Nietzsche, on the genealogy of morality, actually, and, uh, and also on Marx. So that doesn't mean uh, that uh, I don't want to raise expectations for tonight's podcast, but... <laughs> because you started ne- reading Nietzsche stuff and I do again have a history, let's say. <laughs> two days ago, right? Today. You know, actually, undergrad, I feel like I am a, a Nietzsche pedigree because Walter Kaufman, the guy who translated all the coolest versions of these texts, was the mentor of Richard Bergman, who is kind of one of my advisors and uh, certainly my favorite prof at uh, U Michigan when I was undergrad, who was also the prof of somebody you guys had. Bergman was the prof of Robert Solomon. Was really? His, uh, yes. Bob Solomon, one of the great continental figures in the country, I guess. And uh, his wife, Kathy Higgins, who actually taught the Nietzsche course there. So I got a lot of really good uh, interpretations. Kaufman is very careful, really thought that all the translations before him were just crap and led to a lot of misinterpretations so that he loads it down, not just with like clarifications on, on what the words mean, but just on how it should be interpreted. Like, don't take this out of context. You got to look at these three sections too, those kind of things. So this time around, I was looking to be less charitable, actually. <laughs> I got a good sense of earlier period versus his later period. These are pretty late in his life, these texts, right? In the last five books or so. So genealogy of morals. I guess the big thing here, before we get into the story of genealogy of morals, which I'm sure will be the thing that is the most famous among what we were going to talk about, I guess there are a few points on his approach. Like I wanted to point out in Beyond Good and Evil, chapter one, sections five and six. He says, for instance, uh, what makes one regard philosophers half mistrustfully and half mockingly is not that one and again detects how innocent they are, how often and how easily they fall into error and go astray. In short, their childishness and childlikeness that they display altogether insufficient honesty while making a mighty and virtuous noise as soon as the problem of truthfulness is even remotely touched upon. Okay, here's the part I care about. They pose as having discovered and attained their real opinions through the self-evolution of a cold, pure, divinely unperturbed dialectic while... What happens at bottom is that a prejudice, a notion, an inspiration, generally a desire in the heart, sifted and made abstract, is defended by them with the reason sought after the event. Mm-hmm. And uh, section six elaborates on that. Is has gradually become clear to me that what every great philosophy has hitherto been, a confession on the part of its author and a kind of involuntary and unconscious memoir. Moreover, that the moral or immoral intentions in every philosophy have every time constituted the real germ of life out of which the entire plant has grown. So, in other words, he's sort of the father of using ad hominem attacks in philosophy. And I kind of agree with this, that when we've been doing some of these past episodes, you cannot tell me, for instance, some of these super religious guys just would have come to the same conclusions when approaching with an open mind in a blank slate. No, no, no. They knew what they wanted to find beforehand. So that goes for Leibniz, who had a very... I'm not saying every bit of his philosophy is, you know, dishonest in this way, but... There's a guy who came down with a very, very super religious worldview of, in fact, thinking that God created the best of all possible worlds and really just defending the perfection of everything that there was, all the way to uh, last episodes at Kant, who, even though he has a great respect for science, well, Leibniz did too, but uh, you know, was very careful to leave a hole to cling to the religious and moral beliefs that he was no, brought I don't, up with. Don't agree. <laughs> I would figure that you would not agree. <laughs> 
so it's easy to play this game with just about everybody. And he rips on, you know, the utilitarians, criticizes the English as being sort of dull and slavishly in pursuit of pleasure. Right. That's why their ethical philosophy would boast this kind of predilection. Yeah. Human beings aren't driven by pleasure. Only the Englishman is or something like that. There you go. <laughs> That's the quote I was looking for. <laughs> There's actually a really nice passage in the um, first chapter, section 11, where he says, But let us reflect, it is high time to do so. How are synthetic judgments a priori possible? Kant asked himself. And what really is his answer? By virtue of a faculty, but unfortunately not in five words. Uh, but so circumstantially, venerably, and with such a display of German profundity and curly cues that people simply fail to note the comical naiserie allemande involved in such an answer. Uh, yeah, I mean, this, there were just some delightful, delightful turns of phrase in this, uh, for sure. Yeah. But at the same it, time, without, just, just, with, can you ex just explain that, that quote that is, if he says it's just by a faculty, it's, it, that's, he's not giving any explanation at all. That's yes. Well, and that's Nietzsche's point is that ultimately what yes. he says is, how is this possible by virtue of a faculty? But it takes him a ginormous couple of books to get to it. And he spawns an industry of faculty searching with all the young theologians and tubing and going off into the bushes looking for faculties. But he is talking also about how it's particularly German and how Germans were craving these kinds of solutions to their problems because they're, of course, pious and in need of turning, making everything scientific. <laughs> so I guess the other major point to keep in mind, and this is related, he was very influential on uh, Sigmund Freud, right? On psychologists. So he's accusing all these people of doing things for unconscious motives. And so really his project, one of the ways of thinking about it is kind of like Descartes, where Descartes was sitting back and saying, I'm going to forget everything that I think I know and I'm going to see what's left. And he kind of does that with values, but he thinks you can't do it just, you know, sitting down and pretending I don't value anything, right? That's fooling yourself. He criticizes Descartes in some passage that I don't think we read in this book as being superficial. And whatever you think about that, his version of the meditations, how he gets to the bottom of, you know, what his real values are, or sort of what can I doubt? Can I evaluate all the values that I currently have? is not just a sitting down of an evening and writing what he thinks. It's like sitting for months and months, and he has all these recommended regimens of isolation, and a lot of it he presents in metaphor, so it's a little difficult to see what he's actually doing, but he has images at the beginning of several of his books of you know the wise man kind of going off in the wilderness and and having years of solitude and not speaking to anyone, and then finally being ready to talk... It, of submerging the soul in all these strange and far-off inhospitable climes uh, in order to come up with his insights. And of course, there's always room for improvement. There's always room for digging deeper and deeper. So, I mean, that's what he's been trying to do is, is to evaluate values themselves, evaluate the values that he comes with, evaluate the, the values he hears about. So he tries to use psychological evaluations of himself and of other people. He tries to use historical evaluations. He just thinks that introspecting in the way Descartes does you know, of a moment is not going to get you a whole lot. But what's he doing that's not introspection? What's not moment to moment introspection? It's searching hard over time and watching your own behavior and mm. being very self-critical. 
That's different than just sitting back and like a phenomenologist and saying, I'm going to think of nobility and I'm going to describe the thoughts that come into my head when I think of that. I mean, yes, there's some of that, but it's not just once. It's over a long time. I think Wes, what he's doing is he, he thinks, you know, he says doing a genealogy. So right. a couple of things about what yep. you just said, Mark. So the first thing is there are numerous points where he refers to himself as a psychologist or a philologist, and he has a whole little riff on grammar and how grammar deludes you into thinking there's such a thing as a subject. And I think one of his criticisms is the history of philosophy has been this quest for self-knowledge or truth, and that that in itself has been taken for granted. And then we get caught up in either desired ends that, as you say, we presuppose and then prove to or linguistic confusions about ego and self. He actually lauds Descartes for just dealing with reason and, and throwing away intuition. At least he tried, I think he says, but you know, there's still this issue of the ego. But he says, you know, there's this craving for this fundamental grounded knowledge that comes from within. And we're not allowed to just work from experience and come across isolated truths or make mistakes. There has to be this turn inside to create some kind of fundamental truth. And he thinks that that in itself is misguided, and it's particularly misguided when you're using it to talk about morality, because you're assuming a morality or you're assuming that morality has value, and then you're just going off trying to prove what the grounding for that morality is. Yep. And what he says is, no, we I should talk about whether or not morality has value at all. I think that we should note that Descartes was actually a scientist and invented analytical geometry and the things that yes, are at the yes, foundation yes. of modern science. And Nietzsche was did a... Not, uh, did not do those things. <laughs> ...was a philologist. So, you know, he's doing a genealogy, but it's highly speculative. Oh, of course. Don't get Just me wrong. I'm a, huge, I'm a huge fan of Nietzsche. Nietzsche's my... Hey, what's a, what's a philologist? <laughs> Well, a comparative linguist, let's say. So he studied a lot of ancient Greek, and he wrote his dissertation on tragedy. That's the birth of tragedy, which was uh, controversial in its time because it didn't have any footnotes or didn't have many. It wasn't this typical German scholarly work. And then I think he was made chair, despite all that controversy over his really unusual dissertation, he was made chair of a department of philosophy at something like the age of 24 or the age of 26. So... After which, he, it wasn't long before he resigned. So he really is the true rebel. He lived but, up to his anti-philosophical rhetoric. Although, on the other hand, it's unclear. There's anti-philosophical rhetoric, and there's anti-ascetic rhetoric, and we see that in the genealogy. But there's also parts of the genealogy which show that asceticism, you know, where he talks about the making of promises is necessary to humanity as such, to you know what we think of as social relations. So it's not entirely clear that he's merely hates philosophy or merely hates Christianity. In fact, he criticizes the critics of Christianity and Judaism at some point. So for all his ranting and raving, I, I actually think it's very difficult to say where he stands on Kant or that you know there's yep. scholarship which argues that he's essentially a Kantian epistemologically. So anyway. I think that's all worth noting. The university paid for his uh, retirement, right? They paid oh, did him. they? I didn't know that. I believe that's, I saw that somewhere. So yeah, he spent his last 10 years. Yeah, so most of his work was written in his last 10 years after he was done teaching. And he just got to hang around and write and travel to beautiful parts of Europe. Yeah, on, with on crippling, dime. crippling stomach ailments and yes, the yes. things that he accuses philosophers of having and 
<laughs> and he's very personally driven by one of his ideas that we see in this reading is that this so-called armchair reflection or these pure ideas are actually driven by not only these personal interests and these agendas, but also by the body. So-and-so yep. had a stomach ache that morning, and that's where such-and-such such an idea came from. And, of course, he's talking about himself to some extent, too. So. Yep. So I think we should do another episode on him as a psychologist or his epistemological theories. I think we probably said enough, for the most part, to jump to the ethical stuff. Yeah. He's got this story in the genealogy of morals. Who wants to give the overview of what's the first essay of that's about? I'll take a stab at it. So first, just to mention for anybody to get kind of as clear and concise uh, a statement about what's going to happen in the genealogy, if you look at the prologue, section six, he says, we need a critique of moral values, but before we must first question the very value of these values. Yep. And for that, we need a knowledge of the conditions and circumstances out of which these values grew, under which they've developed and changed. We have taken the worth of these values as something given beyond dispute. So what he's talking about when he's talking about values in this context is what he calls modern European values, which are based on Judeo-Christian, a Judeo-Christian ethic. Right. I mean, the basic premise that he outlines in the first essay is that prior to the advent of, I'm not even calling them Judeo-Christian at this point, because he gives the Jews responsibility for this, and I'll comment on that later. But prior to the advent of what we might call a Judeo-Christian value set, there was a different value set that reigned. And he's thinking specifically of Greece, or at least Greek culture as interpreted from his time. And the etymology of the word good and what constitutes good action is things that the Greeks thought were good, namely things like strength, beauty, wit, right political action, those sorts of things. And so there was what he calls an aristocratic or noble, he sometimes calls it knightly aristocratic, or noble, but essentially they're values that are based on you being very good in character and action. So if you are strong, powerful physically, a great warrior, you're attractive, you're rich, you're healthy, then you're good. And you're typically going to be aristocratic of a sort of a very thin layer of society. And then it, the words that mean bad are the, the words that apply to the common man. So Things like being ugly, weak, miserly, slow, <laughs> stupid. Unfortunate. Unfortunate, yes. And so at, at this point in time, he says, you basically don't have evil. There's no concept of evil. What you have is good and bad. Good means being all those things that make you good. And bad means not having all of those good attributes. Yep. And they basically corresponds to being you know, highborn versus common man. The bad is like an afterthought. It's just like, it's lacking. It's, yes. It's, we don't, we don't even try not to talk about them. <laughs> no, no, you don't. And in fact, there's a certain amount of just sort of putting up with and pity that the good have. For the uh, I don't know if you'd want to use the word pity. Okay, maybe not the word pity. Nietzsche rails against pity because that implies that you're actually like trying to sympathize and feel what they feel. Like, no, 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 they're, they're sort of beneath your contempt. You're correct. You're, in, you, you don't even you're worry indifferent. About you are indifferent. The nobility are basically indifferent to the fact that the, the common man is lacking in these values because they have better things to think about. Yep. And once something happens, they let it go out of their mind. They don't dwell on stuff, which we'll get to later. So essentially what he holds the Jews responsible for, and before anybody takes this in the wrong direction, I am Jewish. I'm just referring to the text here and I will comment on it later, but this is what he says. He accuses them of creating what he calls a priestly morality, which is essentially the revenge of the common man who's perceived as bad 
by flipping morality on its head and saying that if you are not one of the nobility, if you're weaker, then you don't say that you're good. What you do is you say that the people who have the attributes that put you in a state of being oppressed and ignored and not having all the things that they have are bad. And more than that, they're evil. So mm -hmm. you'll see in there, he talks about a slave rebellion in morality. And this is what he's talking about. It's the reversal of values from valuing actions that are good on the basis of being good, like being strong, swift, good and bad, all a great speaker, to what he calls resentment or resentment by the people who aren't like that. And they flip values in their head to make out that those people who have those attributes are bad and the people who are oppressed and do not have strength and do not have wit and all those things are good. And this and, from this emerges all the meek shall inherit the earth and the Christian right. value. And, and so, all that. so some of the virtues in the slave morality are the things that would make people who are oppressed make their lives easier on each other. So being nice, being neighborly, like anything you can do to make your fellow oppressed feel okay, <laughs> not quite as miserable, count as good. Nothing threatening. Being patient, suffering, sublimating any feelings or actions that you might want to take, suppressing actions that would impose your will upon other people or make you act like one of the nobility. Those are all valued and considered good. And so here we are at the modern age where this uh, slave morality has conquered the world and gone through centuries of history in which some of the most powerful people, the popes, say, the kings of these religious kingdoms, even though they're in positions where they act like aristocrats, they are aristocrats, they still have this self-flagellating slave morality that makes them deny some of the power that they have, or at least reinterpret it or something. It makes them very weird. Science and atheism, ironically, exhibit slave morality and nihilism and are sort of derivations of Christianity, ironically. Tell us more of that story. There's this ascetic ideal involving, so you, could, you can see some of the parallels, for instance, between the, the priest and the scientist. They're both retreating into this sort of life of the mind. They're retreating away from the world and the life of action. And they're both looking for this sort of, let's call it passive aggressive payoff, heaven in the case of the Christian yep. or the priest and the, you know, the machine in the case of the scientist. And they're both nerdy and don't get women. And they're also both trying to explain this world in terms of something that's otherworldly and unseen. So again, in Christianity, there's the divine, and in science, there's the model of the atom or the dark matter and all the unseen speculations. With the scientific, the enlightenment came the idea of progress and moving toward this kind of ideal world in which, you know, science would solve all our problems. Yeah. So scientists kind of live in that future that denies the present world just as much as anything else. And you see the contemporary atheists like Christopher Hitchens and Dawkins, they're the sort of atheists. So Nietzsche is obviously an atheist, but he scoffs at a certain type of atheist, the atheist who doesn't understand the sort of sacrifice that comes with atheism, that doesn't understand what you have to give up which is slave morality. So you see, you know, the, often you see the atheists, they think it's absurd to think that you need the divine in order to have what they call morality, which is what Nietzsche would call slave morality. But in fact, Nietzsche's claim is, in fact, you have to give that up. So they haven't extirpated themselves from this sort of moral ideology 
which in a way makes them worse, I think, for Nietzsche. They think they've done something profound as atheists, for instance, as a reaction to Christianity. He does talk about this briefly in the genealogy. Haters of Christianity, you know, for all the hatred of Christianity in his reading, he scoffs at the haters of Christianity because I think he sees that sort of reactionary, there's a certain blindness there, and that's that they still uphold essentially the same system of values, which and is the slave morality that infects every... There's two things they have in common. One is they're still trying to assert some kind of foundational principle, whatever that happens to be. And I think the other thing is that Nietzsche, even though he himself was a recluse and all that, at least in the genealogy, he's pretty critical of people who deny the world or retreat from the world. I mean, there's a place in here somewhere where he basically says that the slave revolt and morality or resentment is the very first time that you get the concept of the world as something alien Right. separate and considered, you know, the whole concept of an afterlife and all this, that the world is somehow, I don't want to say bad, but that it's something from which you should distance yourself. And, you know, the very first part of the book, he's contrasting the weird focus on self-knowledge and ignoring experience is missing the point, right? So that's another commonality between, a, you know, a Christian and an atheist and an ascetic is that they're all essentially just reacting to the same thing in different ways or making the same mistakes. And mere thinking is just another form of self-laceration in a way, self-torture. The moment you start thinking, you're holding back instinct, you're engaging in that. He has that whole tirade about self-torture. So, Well, and if you introduce people to Nietzsche with this story of master and slave morality, which seems a pretty common way to do it, Mm. then people are left, well, what does Nietzsche actually want us to do? Does he want us to return to master morality? You know, in some ways we can't do that. Master morality right. is unreflective. Like we're already reflective. We can't turn back the clock. So it's really hard to ultimately figure out where he goes, but the, he gives us some very And he's not hints. idealizing that. He's not saying, oh, this is such a great thing when the blonde beasts went around killing people at will. Yeah, he says they're really stupid. Yeah. In fact, that if our natural instinct is to exert our power out, and then we're put in a situation as slaves where we can't do that anymore, then we end up with this self-laceration. We end up exerting our power back into ourselves, creating these inner worlds. And that's, he says, what made the human animal interesting. Right? Right. A lot of our notions of self-consciousness, as you say, thinking at all. So philosophy, exactly. really all, all of our intellectual life would not have come up if we were these dumbass masters that could just go out and shoot something whenever we uh, yeah. had an urge that having some sort of self-torture to get yeah. your blood boiling and thinking about stuff is good for producing good art anyway. Well, also to the soul as such, I think he's speaking more broadly than the concept of soul that, that he critiques. The, the whole idea of instincts, you know, he talks about the soul or psyche as, as something, an internal cave that's been carved out by instincts that can't be outwardly expressed, right? The whole Man becomes interesting when he becomes subjugated by other men. It's the men who are subjugated by the blonde beasts who start to develop intelligence and souls because they have to savage themselves. They have no one else to savage. <laughs> I'll just give the listeners a point of reference. Section 10 of the first essay where he talks about the slave revolt beginning in resentment, the ones who are prevented or unable to be active and compensate with imaginary vengeance. This exercise leads to a negation to that which is outside or other from itself. This may be my summary, not the actual text. But what he does say is that the man of resentment will be cleverer on account of having to mull over actions and motivations to create the value, you know, as opposed to, say, the noble or aristocratic person who can essentially take things at face value. The noble shrugs off what others internalize and remember. So it does, in essence, create this much richer inner life, but it does so with what he later calls bad conscience. <laughs> that 
It's a rich inner life that is basically created out of a not very healthy motivation. And so we might suppose that his desire to re-examine the value of values is to maybe find a more positive way to create self-reflection in this inner life that isn't based on resentment. So we don't want to be just simply unreflective, but we want to be reflective in a way that's very healthy about how awesome we are <laughs> and if how beloved of the possible. God, if that's even possible. Can I make one subtle distinction here, which I only... No, there, no, there will be no subtle distinction. <laughs> <laughs> no subtlety. There is a distinction between what he calls resentment and bad conscience, because bad conscience, or essentially guilt, right, is a sort mm. of... No, that's... In this context, I don't think it's guilt in the, in the strictest sense. So resentment no. is the resentment of the common man over what the nobles have. Bad conscience in this context is what happens when you suppress or sublimate your will to power because it's moral to do so. And so you get frustrated, essentially. It's not so much guilt as kind of like... I think it's guilt. Well, he tells this story in the second essay about the growth of bad conscience and where punishment comes from and right. other things like this. So he, yeah. he expands on this story of how our noble instincts were subverted and made us into this weird creature that we are. So he says Let's... explicitly it's not resentment that leads to bad conscience. In part four of the second essay, so these genealogists of morality up to now ever remotely dreamt that, for example, the main moral concept, guilt, descends from the very material concept of debts. So he's deriving bad conscience from this idea of the creditor and the debtor and all that. Yes. Or guilt from debt. I think there is some kinship between the concept of guilt and bad conscience. Well, let's come back to that because that's okay. a little more advanced. I don't think we're through just with the idea of resentment and this kind of like inverse. At the very least, I haven't heard what you guys think of whether this is just complete. Since he just is kind of stating it. Mm. Do you guys that's actually... Typical, typical of Nietzsche that he doesn't argue so much. He gives illustrations, he gives strong opinions, but if you ultimately don't agree with his observation, especially these sort of aesthetic and moral observations, he doesn't have much to say to you. The implication is if you think hard enough and look at this hard enough, you will think the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, let me say something first. I mentioned that I was going to say something about his assigning the responsibility to the Jews about this and kind of my opinion. So my feeling is, is that his reading of this priestly or slave morality is uniquely Christian. It's not really mm -hmm. Jewish at all. So Judaism is a religion of laws. It is a book that has 613 laws in it that describe a covenant between a certain small segment of the population known as Jews with God. It is, to my reading, it's kind of a more formal and legal way of how you could be favored by God. So if in the Greek sense, being favored is being beautiful and strong and fierce in battle and a great orator, Judaism has this thing that says, okay, if you sacrifice this kind of thing in this way and you pray this way at this time of day and observe all these rituals, then you'll be. And the fact of the matter is, is that when the Jews had a state and had power, you'll notice that the Jewish political leaders and the, the society, and by the way, the way the Jews come to power the way that they march through the Middle East and take lands by destroying, committing genocide and varieties of others' atrocities and waging war on people is hardly what you would call meek. Right. And Nietzsche approves of, of them when they're at yeah. that stage. Yes. He has nice things to say about the Old Testament. 
Well, he praises them. He says it's a form of revenge, right? They sort of implanted the seed of slave morality that they themselves don't adhere to. I don't right? know. And if you get right down to it, basically, the early history of the Jews is somebody tells one of them that they need to go to this place because they own it. And anybody who gets in their way or who's there when they get there needs to be moved or killed. And that's what they do. Mm -hmm. They march and they wage war and they intermarry and they take over and they do these sorts of things. In my mind, the birth of the kind of sentiment that he's talking about doesn't happen until the Jews are dispossessed of power by the Romans and also- well, and, in, and, and, and in, earlier- invaders depending on where geographically you're talking about but it's like once the jews become a minority inside of a foreign state then it's a whole different dynamic and by the way that's when christ comes along and actually articulates what nietzsche describes as the slave morality so to me it's not a judaic thing i think it's no, very christian right. that'll be my little nietzsche, just so people know so he has one passage here which seems very critical of judaism and the jews and then he has another which is praiseworthy. And then he has passages elsewhere, which are generally, he's praising the Jews. And all his contempt gets heaped on Christianity. Right. And he has a lot of nasty things to say, just to clarify for listeners sensitive on this point and willing to just dismiss Nietzsche outright for his anti-Semitism. And certainly Hitler interpreted him as being very anti-Jewish, but he has a lot of passages where he goes out of his way to condemn the yeah. anti-Semitism of his contemporaries. So this right. is like 50 years before Hitler was in power, before World War II. He was writing this kind of stuff. And there was plenty of that anti-Semitism around and some of the big well-known philosophers that no longer read that were uh, active at the time or writers, socially influential thinkers were famous in part for their anti-Semitism, right? That was brewing for a long time before Hitler came along. Right. And th that really his... The whole anti-Semitism reputation started with his sister who after Nietzsche's death was really, she was married to a hardcore anti-Semite and she also became a publicizer of Nietzsche. And she actively tried to create a reputation for him as an anti-Semite, which was undeserved. Yeah, actually, I didn't realize, but the pictures that you see of Nietzsche with his giant bushy mustache, <laughs> apparently those were all... he's insane, right? Yes, yes. So the last, what, he lived 10 years or something? Yeah, and he would like play piano naked and... Yeah, so after, after he was done writing, yeah, 1889 is when he went insane. So he was done writing, but he had written a lot of things last years. So things continued to be published for the next 10 years before he died. And he was just completely crazy. And some of these pictures taken of him of when he was completely out of his mind, like he didn't actually have the crazy big mustache so much when he was uh, sane. Talk about losing control of your image. So let's see the mustache as an effect rather than a cause of his rantings. Yes. Well, <laughs> now, he does talk a lot about very racist kind of talk, not just about Jews, but about everybody. And I interpret this, which makes it only slightly less obnoxious, but in terms of the spirits of the times, geists. So Hegel, a big philosopher before him, popularized this notion of talking about the spirit of the times and how the different intellectual trends will interact with each other to produce something new. And so that's kind of the way he's talking when he's talking about Christians or Jews. He's not so much being a straight ahead racist and saying this group of people believes this thing. He's talking about intellectual climates. So like to have a point of view that he might associate with Jews or something, you wouldn't even have to be Jewish. It's just have this attitude. Now that's being charitable. To spin that around, it seems he was pretty racist about whole groups of people to think that 
whole societies just have uh, physiological issues that would make all of their intellectual climate crap. Yeah. And people, you know, it really would put a lot of things down to genetics. One of the passages I read in, in one of these works was, you know, you can really predict very much what the son is going to turn out like uh, when you see the father. Like, there's pretty much no guesswork involved, which makes thinking of him as an ethicist very difficult, right? He emphasizes in a number of places he doesn't believe in free will, that that's just something, you know, that was made up along with modern morality. And so he's got this, we're all kind of determined by our characters. There's no room for should in that. There's no room for ethics at all, seemingly, if we're kind of all just 90% at least determined by, by our characters. Mm -hmm. This coupled with, he says in one place, there are no moral facts. I ran across him stating that, I think it was in Twilight of the Idols I was looking at, one of the books just after these, where he blatantly said that. And I think in Beyond Good and Evil, he really talks about all moral sentiments of the past as just being errors. <laughs> It's not to say they're bad. Maybe some errors can be good and life-affirming. And, you know, we've just said he, he has a different view on truth. So it just makes it very hard to interpret where he's coming from and what he actually believes in terms of how we should act. Yeah. And Nietzsche, you know, in a way is like the Bible, right? You can always quote verses one way or another, and people do. There's a lot of apparent self-contradiction. I'll say apparent because it's a scholarly pastime to try and make Nietzsche consistent with himself. Because there is a lot of seeming inconsistency. You know, on the one hand, he's scoffing at the idea of truth, and then in another passage, he'll be talking about the concept of truth passionately. Yeah, so they're having an intellectual conscience. Like, how can these Christians stand themselves by believing such stupid things? Like, he says things that yeah. sound very much like that. And this is why Nietzsche is the philosopher for high school students. This is the, the <laughs> adolescent rebellious. This is really the spirit... Speaking of Geist, you know, if you were speaking of Geist in terms of human development, this is the adolescent Geist writ large, you know, <laughs> unless they've given you Ayn Rand, you get off on Nietzsche, which is the real thing. That gets back actually to my initial point, which is, you know, when I was trying to say, I really feel like there's quite a bit of substance in here that I missed yeah. as an adolescent. Yeah. Precisely because I was fixated on those sorts of things. I feel the same way. I really just love the anti-Christian stuff because, you know, I was one of those kids who wanted to hate all the Christian kids in school. And me and my friends would go around quoting, you know, some of the worst stuff like Church's Smell or something, you know, some of the <laughs> Nietzsche's. <laughs> Great, but really insulting metaphors. And then, of course, you know, I think you realize it's much more complicated. Do you know what is Nietzsche and what's a persona, for instance? You know, this stuff isn't just, uh, it's not an Aristotelian treatise. It's closer to literature. And when he's ranting, in some ways, he's stepping into the emotion of that moment, right? He's filling it out. And I think he, he'll take someone in consistent positions and give them their best rhetoric. But I don't think that you could simply say that Nietzsche is anti-Plato or anti Christian or anti and any of the things that he derides, except for maybe Rosantama right. and some of the more basic concepts. Right. He'll oversimplify and overstate to make a point. He'll go out of his way to sound offensive, to shock the reader into thinking about some issue. Right. And some of it's just play. Exactly. That's a great word for it. One of the things that occurred to me, who's like the forerunner of uh, the Howard Stern persona, as far as <laughs> arrogance goes, you know, Howard That's Stern amazing. makes a big deal about like, I'm the king of all media. I'm the great, like, it was one of the first yeah. I've heard it many times since of, uh, you know, people putting forward this really arrogant, over-the-top persona. And Nietzsche did the same thing, right? And Eke Homo, one of his last book, really, before he went insane, he's like, the chapter titles are like, why I'm so clever, right? I, why, I want, <laughs> yeah, exactly. why I'm so wise. 
Yeah. Why write such great books? Yeah, it takes a lot of skill to, to get away with that persona, which is exactly what they're acknowledging when they praise themselves. Look how great I am to get away with this narcissism in public. So. <laughs> but it's also a rhetorical strategy that supports where he's coming from. I mean... Right. If he wrote in the style of Kant to try to refute Kant, we wouldn't right. be reading him today. I mean, if he says, I am trying to shock you out of a way of thinking to force you to, and we have to remember too, this is a profound thought for the time to say, hmm, Christianity is now a completely dominated Western culture for several thousand years, so much so that the greatest minds that have been thinking for 1500 years have just been trying to find ways to philosophically or rationally ground the values that Christianity has given to us. But how did we get here in the first place? How is it that Christianity basically colonized the Western world? And how is it that the value systems that existed before were completely thrown off? And why should we embrace this? So it's a very profound and sophisticated, not criticism, but questioning of the entire Western tradition around morality. And it's pretty significant. And so if he was talking to a contemporary trying to explain that, it's one thing for us to do it now in this postmodern God is dead era. But imagine him trying to articulate. You have to imagine that a, a number of people would just not even be able to conceive of asking themselves the question. That's my thought. I'm still thrilled. I have to admit, every time I read him, I'm thrilled, not just by the iconoclasm, but by the just the rhetorical virtuosity. And it's deep at the same time. Like, you know, as you said, it's not like some guy with a superficial grasp of what's come before him, who's because there are a lot of people who do try and imitate, right? And I think among the postmodernists, they think they can do what Nietzsche does and get away with it. And of course, they can't. They come across looking like pretentious idiots. You know, so. I don't have a good sense, really, of how qualified Nietzsche is about some of these things he's criticizing. Okay, okay. He was definitely a scholar of Plato and Aristotle, and the pre-Socratics. These ancient well, Greek folks are what he Greek, actually Greek tragedy. Yep. And also yep. not, yeah, not just philosophy. I think I remember somebody saying to me that there's no evidence that he like sat down and spent a long time with Kant's critique of pure reason or something. It's just these are things that were in the philosophical era and he read, mm. you know, probably not a lot more than we did about some of these things. So one of the things we just start on, if you look at the blog, so I did our first movie review recently and um calling it the partially examined books or partially examined movies. I actually, I watched the first half of a movie and I was so incensed by it that I just stopped it and wrote this thing on it. And then I didn't see the rest and I'm not going to. And I think that's typical. You're never really qualified to criticize what you're talking about, frankly. I mean, yes, there are degrees. We're way more qualified to talk about Nietzsche, say, than somebody who's never read any, but I'm not a Nietzsche scholar. You know, we, we're always right. bullshitting to some extent. And I think Nietzsche just accepts that as an inevitable part of criticism, unless I'm just reading, as many people do, as I've done historically, reading trends that I like or that I agree with into Nietzsche, even if he <laughs> probably doesn't, he would criticize them himself. But that's one of the things. I think he's talking out of his ass a lot of times. Well, clearly that's the case. <laughs> There's a great line in Blazing Saddles uh, where uh, they're having that town hall meeting or something about what to do about the black sheriff this is a mel brooks movie and then some guy gets up and says well as nietzsche says and someone goes oh blow it out your ass so <laughs> i just thought of that when you talk about using nietzsche like you would use biblical verse to justify whatever and every time i try and quote nietzsche you know in some paper in some conversation I, that's the way i feel it's like oh my god <laughs> As Nietzsche said. If I ever know enough Nietzsche to say it, I just don't quote it. I just say it and let the full impact of the words resonate with the hearer. 
<laughs> you just steal it. You just say it's you. Well, that's right. As I, I Seth, once said. <laughs> no offense, but he's dead. I'm under no obligation to attribute anything to him. Yeah, I'm straight. But to your point, right, he mentions things like Buddhism and Asiatic thought. It's stuff that he clearly is not qualified to pass any kind of reasonable judgment about. Uh, he probably knows a lot about the Greeks. He read a lot of stuff in Greek. And, he, well, there's, and there's Schopenhauer. And he knows a few contemporaries and what we might call modern philosophers. So he read Kant. He read Schopenhauer. He read Dostoevsky. There are a few a, other... A couple things. A yeah. couple things. But like, and you'll notice, I think this is fairly absent from his work. You would think that he would have something more detailed and interesting to say about all the great church fathers, right? Like he kind of drops comments about Aquinas... But it doesn't look to me like he spent a huge amount of time reading or studying a lot of the great medieval Christian philosophers. And he did read Spinoza, by the way, too. And Pascal. Yeah. And I think, to be fair, he's like any scholar. He had a narrow specialization, which is probably actually quite wider than most specializations today. You know, as a philologist studying ancient Greek and Latin and philosophy and tragedy. But I, in a way, he could have been a columnist. You know, he's a yep. public intellectual. Yes. Buddhism, that's through Schopenhauer, right? He gets his... So he's making, in some ways, it's a meta-commentary. He's not trying to say something scholarly about Buddhism or scholarly about Kant. In a way, it's a social commentary or it's a commentary about the psychological and social implications of those philosophers. You know, he does have his epistemological criticisms and Kant's faculties and this and that. But I think He really has a method, a unique method. So that's what he's starting with. And if a lot of his method has to do with individual psychological analyses of people he knows and people he reads, then he's doing that. He probably has somebody specific in mind when he's talking about, you know, annoying Christians. Like he apparently his whole family is <laughs> was raised. His father died when he was very young. So he's raised by his, his mother and sister and some aunts. And he just thought they were all these buddy duddies who had significant psychological problems. Right. Actually, the first thing I read of his was The Antichrist, was another book of his in a religion class. And folks that think that his characterization of Christianity in there and in here as despisers of life. Mm -hmm. Right. Maybe that's not the kind of Christianity that you practice. Right. If you're a Christian that's offended by this, if you actually have a very positive life affirming kind of Christianity, he might have less problem with you or, or else you could at least dismiss what he has to say. If you base what your Christianity is on the reactionary right in this country that is all seems just full of righteous indignation at all points and uh, paranoia about the gay agenda and stuff like that, that's exactly what he's complaining about. Or right. so I read into him again. No, absolutely. But I think once you get into any sort of morality, I mean, anything that we would call morality or justice, or for a Christian, the idea that the meek shall inherit the earth, that sort of stuff, I don't think there is a life-affirming form of that for Nietzsche. You know, my history in this, so I think I might have mentioned to you, so I went to religious camp in junior high, or right before junior high. So I'm a technically a born-again Christian. Mm. You in got, fact, did you get baptized? Well, I was baptized, you know, I went to church when I was young, but that was like yeah. United Church of Christ, which is very open-minded and just not crazy at all. Whereas okay. it was Jesus camp that I went for for a week after sixth grade and, you know, accepted Jesus into my heart and did the whole thing. Except then actually the next year, they actually phrased it as uh, anybody that wants to accept God into their heart, raise their hands. And I didn't really get that that was the same thing. So I did it again. <laughs> So I'm twice born again, technically. I've got Jesus, now I'm going to get God. And, and I came back from that actually like reading the Bible straight through and like was just really religious for a, a few years. 
and then got over that, but used that as a springboard, you know, really to get into philosophy. And I read lots of Eastern stuff, whatever. So I, coming into college, I really saw religious people, Christians in particular, as, you know, they believe a lot of silly stuff, but they're generally harmless. Like their beliefs are be nice to people. Like who could complain about that? Well, after reading Nietzsche, <laughs> that sort of <laughs> was the turnaround. Oh, no, in fact... You know, the the psychological analysis of at least this trend of Christianity that he's pointing out is people that want to devalue our lives now by just, you know, yeah, what you do now does it. In fact, loving one another, that's reduced. It's loving one another for God's sake or loving the God in every other person. They do these just kind of disgusting things, according to Nietzsche's viewpoint, to natural emotions and make everything weird and freaky. And the, the fact that he really thinks is driven by resentment by hate you know this is where all the mm -hmm. righteous indignation comes from you know if you have an ethic that says you have to be nice all the time then what you're really doing is you're repressing it would be better to just let it out have your fight have your screaming match or whatever and then you'll be fine and like have a sense of fullness about yourself but when you're constantly going around trying to sacrifice your interests for other people and that's psychologically unrealistic in such a way that you're going to end up being a hostile resentful obnoxious <laughs> But not just that, it's it's motivated at its core. It's not that hostility is a consequence. The hostility comes first, right? It's turned inward, that's all. Yes. You have to savage someone. Just for the record, this is exactly the analysis that my therapist has given me about my state. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just sharing with you. I'm, a, I'm apparently nice. a living embodiment of Resentiment. <laughs> Do you really have an analyst? Yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. I feel so left you out. Guys it's kind of seemed weirded out when I talked about psychoanalysis before. I didn't, I'm not weirded out. I was just making fun of you. <laughs> Discretion. There's a difference between psychoanalysis oh, yeah, I and seeing you said a analyst. counselor. Psychoanalysis okay. is a very specific and process that... No, no, no. Sorry. Yeah, I don't have an if analyst. It was, I have a counselor. Yeah. If it was free and I had time for it, then no problem. <laughs> like, no. If, you know, there have been girlfriends that I treated like <laughs> therapists. And that was fine. Insofar as they would put up with it. Let me say this. So about your conception of Christians just basically being people who are nice to each other, you know, for God's sake. So, you know, my experience obviously has been a little bit different, and I'm sure Wes's has been as well. But conceptually, if you think about kind of what was going on where he lived at the time, and we say Germany, but Germany wasn't really a country yet. There were a number of different political entities that ultimately became Germany. So he talks about the Germanic spirit. He's talking about the Aryan culture that sat in that region versus Nordic, you know, or Saxon or Gallic or any of these others. But you have essentially Catholicism and Protestantism. Those are the only two flavors of Christianity that exist over there at the time. You don't have Baptists and Mormons and Unitarians and all we're, that kind of stuff. Lutherans, Lutherans. Yes. Both of which embody, I think, bad qualities from his perspective. You know, in Catholicism, you have the wielding of church doctrine to manage the herd. So you have this insanely, probably from his perspective, hypocritical bureaucracy of the church that basically wields Christianity to keep people sort of in line and oppressed and whatever. And then you have this sort of self-abnegating Lutheranism where you just wear a smock and all they did was maintain the oppression but got rid of the priesthood. And so I don't think either one of those things would be very attractive to him. And the kind of different flavors that we have over here in the U.S. these days, you might find a sympathetic character or you might not. 
But the thing that seems to come out to me, and just to get back to kind of the, the text is, it seems to me he's contrasting, and he mentions the blonde beast in Germanic and Visigoths, I think, or something like that. But he's basically contrasting Homeric values to Christian values. That's what this text comes across as to me. Mm-hmm. And I think he's just basically asking, how did we get from there to here? And has anybody actually gone in and done a history of the transition from that Homeric sense of values to Christianity? And there's something in between there, which I guess would be Roman, which are not quite Homeric, Greek, Roman, Greek city-state and Roman, which, by the way, are conspicuously left out of this whole discussion. Oh, no, he's very, I don't know if it's in this section, but discusses how at least the early Roman Empire before Christianity was close to taking over. That's the big mystery he's analyzing. What was it? There was something already that must have been decadent for them to be open to lure of Christianity. But yeah, Rome as going around and imposing its will on all these countries as an empire, like he thought that was a very healthy expression of the will to power. Let me just go back to something real quick and read this to you. The knightly aristocratic judgments of value have as their basic assumption of powerful physicality, a blooming rich, even overflowing health, together with those things required to maintain these qualities, war, adventure, hunting, dancing, war games, and in general, everything which involves strong, free, happy action. Okay. And then he contrasts that with the priestly morality. Here's my thing. That description is a description of Homeric values. It is not a description of Roman Empire or the Athens city-state or Sparta or anything like that. And I think that's the thing is you use the term aristocratic and you're thinking in terms of a class society on the order of the Roman Empire. But the feel I get out of it is that he's thinking more Homeric, which are not necessarily the same values. You have to keep in mind that Christianity isn't the first uh, culprit for asceticism and slave morality. It's Socrates. So if you read The Birth of Tragedy, that's uh, something else to look at, where he gives a very similar critique of this advent of the Apollonian related to the ascetic ideal happens early on in Greek society. In the same way that he sees slave morality as defeating Rome, he sees... You know, you're going to have to explain the Apollonian. You're going to bring it up. He doesn't ever mention the Apollonian Dionysian. In this. No. So in the, no. In the Birth of Tragedy, which is his, essentially his dissertation, he makes this distinction between... Really, in a way, it's, it's something like artistic styles, but you could also see it as fundamental spiritual leanings or qualities, I guess, as well. So the Apollonian is something like painting and sculpture and still and peaceful. And the Dionysian is something like music and the stuff you would do at a party where you're drinking and letting go. And so one is a more conservative, more peaceful, let's say, ascetic value. And the other is more akin to this idea of action. So Apollo represents reason and Dionysus represents drunken revelry, the passions or emotion or something, the rational reason mind versus the physical, experiential, sensual world. Right. Right. And it's also spiritual in a very important way in the way that, you know, good rock and roll is. Right. What, the Dionysian? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So he saw early Greek culture as including, say, the playwright Sophocles and the use of the chorus, which in Greek tragedies, it was more prevalent in early Greek tragedies than later on, or the role of the chorus was more diluted later on. So anyway, he saw early Greek cultures more Dionysian, and it later on, he thinks due to the effect of people like Socrates and Plato as 
becoming more overly rational, let's say. So that's a parallel critique to this critique we get here in the genealogy of morality. But it's a critique to an earlier time. So Christianity is not the first form of, I don't know if slave morality would be the right term, though, for what goes on in Greece. Now, it's interesting, Seth, to hear you talk about him being very specific in his descriptions of slave and master morality, these specific cultures, because I really always read him and he says this, you know, specifically in some other places where he's not talking about a specific set of values for master morality. He's talking about a specific class of moralities that have appeared in many different cultures. Pretty much whenever you get a bunch of leaders, that society comes together, not through a nice social contract like Hobbes mm -hmm. or somebody would say, but through the strong taking control of the weak. And there you go. There's the society. And the strong have to work out some rules regarding each other because, you know, they're equals or in some other kind of hierarchy. And so that becomes their ethic. So every group has their own internal dynamics and rules that they can come up with to govern themselves. And so the slave class could just kind of take what the masters are dishing out. But if they're industrious enough, they're trying to exert their own will to power, a term that we've not yet talked about with. And, and People can't really stand unless they just have really, really low level of health and expression of this will to power. They're not going to be able to stand being completely repressed in the way any slave class is. So to a greater or lesser extent, they're going to develop their own counter morality. It just so happens that Judaism turning to Christianity is the historically important one for our purposes because it's what resulted in the intellectual climate that we have now. But you know what he talks about when he talks about you know, the progression in India or China toward Buddhism, he sees there have been similar dynamics that have gone in the past. It's just that they're actually historically far ahead of us in their development. Not necessarily in a good way, but... That's the nihilistic dynamic. I can understand what you're saying, but since he really only gives lip service, he just kind of drops comments about that. Sure. And he's specifically focused on you know Greece and also European. He talks about Europeanism. Even when he mentions things like these other societies, there's a place where he talks about the Vandals and the Goths and Homeric heroes and Scandinavian Vikings and Japanese nobility. I'm just saying that when I read it, what's first and foremost in my mind is, is Homeric stuff. But that's uh, because that seems to be what I think he actually had in mind. I think he's just projecting. I don't think he did a lot of research on samurai culture, you know, in feudal Japan. I would be but very but it comes out in you know his admiration for you know, the early Jews, like you said, when they were in power. You know they were just another kind of pagan. You know it's it's our god against your gods, and we want you to worship our god. And so if we whoop you, that our god wins. Like that's a master morality in play. The reason I think this is so important is because the question when we have this story laid out before us is what do we do now? Right. right? So. If we just see, oh, master morality is referring to this specific thing in long ago Greece, and slave morality is this specific historical thing that happened and how it's evolved, where we are all now is these two strains of master and slave morality are still in us. And you know, if you're an intelligent, thoughtful person or a person of spirit, these things are going to be warring within you to some extent. And so that gives you some options of actually which way to go. But it's not just even narrowly that if you're appeasing the master qualities into you, you're going toward this very specific thing that they had going in Greece. It's going to be nothing right. like that, right? If we, if we want to you know, get more of the master in you and get you not ashamed of your noble urges now, it's going to be going forward in some way. It's right. not going to be taking, if you are taking stuff from the past, 
Well, heck, do more historical research. Pick and choose the things from the past that you want to expound upon in your character rather than you know just grease. Well, it shouldn't be surprising that the solution isn't going to be just a return to master morality, right? It's going to be a sort of synthesis. Well, yeah, and exactly how that goes is not clear, and, and it's probably very individual. Yeah, it seems right? to be something like the fusion of philosophy and art, right? This sort of integrated solution. So you don't simply return to master morality, and you don't simply remain in the position of slave morality, but you, you go beyond, you achieve a synthesis. Now, it's so tempting when reading Nietzsche then to try to ask him for or, or write yourself like a how-to guide on how to <laughs> self-actualize. Like, this is your journey and what your journey is going to be like. And he kind of does some of that, like, you know, having a whole chapter in Beyond Good and Evil about, uh, you know, the free spirit. And he does this in some of his other books, too, of giving a little bit of a character of what the uh, truly free thinkers mental habits are going to be. But, you know, he doesn't go so far as to... So I remember uh, reading some secondary literature, not recently, uh, Nehemas. Is it Alexander Nehemas? Yeah. I believe it is. And he had this view of interpreting Nietzsche as make your life into an art. And, you know, it was a very specific sort of how to... Right, right. You know, it's a, it's a very useful interpretation of Nietzsche. I'm not sure if that's what, <laughs> exactly what he was shooting for or not. In some ways, it doesn't matter, right? All philosophy... Read it charitably, root through it for stuff that you can use. And Nietzsche is, is more amenable than others to doing that with. Yeah. But I guess we should talk about a little of, of what we got out of or what, what things we've heard about or what we can see in the text of how one should live, what his ethic actually is. Because it's not just be a brute. So I would say two things about that. First off, I want to talk about the second essay before we do that. Because yeah. I think there's the second thing is, I don't know that there's enough in what we read or in this text to meaningfully answer that. I don't know. I feel like we'd have to read Zarathustra to have that conversation. But I'm happy to try. This is just our first visit to Nietzsche. We'll have a, another episode on him and force ourselves to read Zarathustra or gay science or some of these other things. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about the second essay then. Okay. So this was about guilt, about punishment, about bad conscience, right? Yeah. Guilt, bad conscience, and related matters. And one of the stories that he tells, another historical kind of story comparable to what he tells in the first essay, is the notion of debt and how it grows in cultures. That originally it's feeling like you owe your ancestors things, right? Your ancestors, your parents really most directly, are the ones who set up the society, who made it all so you could live the comfortable life that you have or whatever level of comfort it may be. And as this goes... Through the generations, you know, it's very common to have ancestor worship, to actually raise these people to gods. And he thinks this is actually kind of where one of the notions of gods came from, or why we would owe anything to the gods anyway, right? If you just think the god is like some dude behind the sun or behind the rain, okay, well, you might want to do some sacrificing to ensure your crops are good. But he thinks there's a, just a more direct, more well-grounded and experienced reason to suck up to the gods. And that's because you have this conception of your ancestors having done stuff that has resulted in your situation now, right? And so over time, this builds up, this indebtedness. Right. And more and more sacrifices. It's physical things. If you could just go sacrifice a calf every once in a while, that wouldn't be so bad. But you feel like it's not enough. And you, you turn inward. You have to be giving your every thought, oh, I can't, don't use the Lord's name in vain, right? Who put that in the Ten Commandments? You have to be careful what you say. I will not covet my neighbor's wife. These are not things he talks about directly. This is just me making stuff up. But 
you know, you have to start watching your thoughts because really you owe your thoughts to God. It becomes extremely neurotic and weird. Yeah. So over time, the ancestors are deified and then you have this step towards gods and then ultimately the religion becomes monotheistic, right? So he says that the Christian God is the maximal God yet achieved and that it thus also brought about the appearance of the greatest feeling of guilt on earth. So guilt which I take to be the same as bad conscience. Seth, there may be a distinction that I'm not aware of that you can talk about. So it gradually increases to the point where there's a really interesting, this is one of my favorite parts in this essay, where the only thing you can do once the guilt becomes too much and you realize, you basically, you can't pay back your creditor, right? You know, you've run up infinite amount of debt on your God credit cards and you're, you're screwed. And so you have to be forgiven your debt, essentially. And the only way to do that is to have God himself pay for you, which in a way comes back to that very primary instinct to cause pain to other people, which he talks about earlier on. It's the end of section 21. Yeah. God sacrifices himself for the guilt of mankind. God makes payment to himself. God is the only being who can redeem man from what has become unredeemable for man himself. The creditor sacrifices himself for his debtor out of love. Do you want to talk a little bit about this creditor-debtor relationship, though? Just because there's quite a bit of buildup to get to that point. Yeah, we, um, we are talking about the second part of that essay. Yeah. Right. His discussion of punishment, kind of what kicks the thing off. Yeah, it's very strange. <laughs> and justice as well. He says, we think of justice as like a way of encoding a revenge, right? We all want to take revenge on each other, so we come up with this justice that'll give me a right to hang the person if they do something wrong but he actually says it's the opposite of that it's that in the state of nature we just smack on each other all we want and what justice is actually does is limit the amount that we can retaliate right when you have an uncontrolled situation like conflicts will just build and build up no we want to be able so if somebody does something wrong to you you can somehow get that paid back they can give you money so it makes it okay or you get to do the same thing to them right somebody kills your daughter oh maybe you get to kill their daughter and then everything is okay right the, the eye for an eye thing is less i remember uh when grading papers at u texas in contemporary moral problems we'd have a unit on capital punishment and i remember some guy writing like capital punishment is not bad enough they kill multiple people you should be able to torture them to the limit of death let them heal up torture them again and just keep doing that a bunch of times and finally kill them right uh, and the, so that's... the relationship yeah between this and the creditor debtor thing is the idea that it's pleasurable to see others suffer so this is another one of his iconoclastic ideas there's a great line in section six which i've always remembered to see somebody suffer is nice to make somebody suffer is even nicer that is a hard proposition, but an ancient, powerful, human, all-to-human proposition to which, by the way, even the apes might subscribe. That's true. And the thing about it is, is this is couched in a discussion about the purpose of cruelty in punishment in the context of repayment of debt. Mm -hmm. Because he's, he says basically, look, the only person who can legitimately make a promise to deliver something or to go into debt is somebody who can predict what they're going to become and what their circumstances will be. And so if you're in that situation, this Mark, this is talking about your two dominant individuals mm -hmm. that can enter into this pact, is that if you and I completely own our own wills and all that, we are entitled to go into this creditor-debtor agreement. And if you're the creditor and I'm the debtor and I default on the loan, you have a right to extract repayment in a quote unquote pound of flesh, right? And that's your yep. right as a master. And the way you do that is through some sort of 
act of cruelty. And in this context, it's not punishment in the sense of, oh, I need to be taught a lesson because I have a guilty conscience. I don't, right? And so because I have right. no guilty right. conscience, you need to punish me. And the way you punish me is by being cruel. And it makes you feel good. And I understand it. And so you celebrate it. And so when he talks about sacrifices to the gods and these sorts of things, these are all celebrations of cruelty that are repayment for a debt. They're ritualized celebrations of cruelty, but that we get to a point, and between this talk in section five and six up to that section 21, he says we migrate from where we can't punish individuals anymore because you get the idea of a conscience and having to like, oh, you've been a bad boy, so let me punish you so that you understand that you've done wrong. And that society gets to a point where it doesn't want to actually punish its offenders the way that individuals use to sort of reconcile with each other. But then, you know, what? guess what? When you have this move to resentment and vengeance and this slave morality, you become ashamed at enjoying suffering. See, I think, though, it's not resentment, though. Bad conscience is not resentment. No, no, I'm not saying they're the same thing. I'm saying okay. this is the outcome of, well, no, I think, you're, I don't know, maybe you're right. Let's go to section 11. And I only bring this up because this confused me for a long time. You know, the first yeah. essay is on Rizantamah. And then, okay, so what's bad conscience then? And how is it related? I see I what see you're saying. Bad conscience is something more basic. Rizantamah is an unfortunate accentuation of some of the things that go on in bad conscience. But bad conscience is, is sort of fundamental to what it means to be human. It's unavoidable. So in the beginning, you get this idea having a will requires just being able to make promises, which is basically his way of talking about having a will means having to have a memory. And that means having to have this sort of aggression, have the ability to punish because you don't remember things, you know, like a little kid. They're not going to remember unless you punish them. But by the time we get to section 11 of this essay, it's now a derogatory mention of recent attempts to seek the origin of justice elsewhere, namely in Rizantama, a word in the ear of the psychologist, assuming they are inclined to study Rizantama close up for once. This plant thrives best among anarchists and anti-Semites today. So here's one of his blows yep. at the anti-Semites. Rizantama is a further elaboration where this idea of revenge is sort of sanctified. So it can draw up on bad conscience, but it's not the same thing, I think. Yeah, no, I, let me tell you how I read that section, because I'm glad you called it out. I just was looking at my notes when you were saying it, and I make the distinction too. I think what he's saying is the original concept of justice is rooted in the creditor-debtor relationship. Right. It is not tied to the concept of revenge. When you extract your pound of flesh and, and commit an act of cruelty to get repayment, it's not out of revenge because you've been harmed, Right. It's an understanding of the creditor-debtor relationship that the creditor has not been wronged. It's strictly a sort of financial transaction that gets made flesh. You owe me this, and I'm going to extract equivalent value for what you owe me in your pain. That's the way I read those mm -hmm. first few sections. Yeah. Yeah. And then what he says is, when that concept gets changed and transformed from protecting the creditor to protecting the rights of the injured party, which he, I think he mm -hmm. says explicitly in there, that that's how resentment influences and transforms this. And you get into the concept of guilt and teaching somebody a lesson and bad conscience and all these sorts of things come out of that. 
But in the original conception of the way the, the law is set up, there is no bad conscience and there is no revenge. And there's yeah, no- I think guilt comes along actually beforehand because, yeah, so in the beginning, you know, punishment is not about reforming people. There's no guilt here. In fact, you know, as he notes, punishing someone is just likely to make them harder. It doesn't make them ashamed. I don't think he thinks there's any, any guilt or very few people are actually feeling guilt. Yeah. Guilt is a result of hierarchy. There's two sides to the equation. You do have the powerful running around subjugating the weak, but the end result of that is that you have a whole bunch of people who have nowhere to express their instincts. You know, a lot of this chapter is about this repression of instincts and the fact that they turn back on oneself and you savage oneself because you can't savage other people. So the people who are powerful and get to express that freely they're fine. But of course, they don't become human in the full sense. They don't become interesting, as he calls it. But to become human in the full sense means that there are essentially checks on your impulses and your aggression gets turned inwards. And I think that's part of the point of talking about all this. Once your aggression gets turned inwards, then you're talking about guilt. You're talking about what he calls the thing that's essential to social relations, right? There are no social relations without guilt, as we understand them. Or he calls it in the third section the primitive requirements of social life. But at a certain point, though, I think Rizantama is another layer on top of bad conscience. It's even worse. It goes farther. I think at the point where you get revenge, you get Rizantama. But it, so, it comes in the forms of first basic creditor-debtor, then guilt, then revenge and Rizantama. Okay. And of course, free will and responsibility come in there at about the same time, that originally we're not punishing people because we regard them as a free agent that has chosen to do something wrong, you punish them for reasons of utility, right? To just get them to quit it. No, you don't. Or, no, he says or, you don't. Or to pay back to the society. Oh, you've stepped out of line and now you need to we'll extract your pound of flesh to give you an okay way of getting back in. Yeah. But he rails against the idea of utility, though. People who get punished become worse criminals. The whole point is to get your money back. It's because hurting people is fun. It's pleasurable. And if you've been hurt, you've been caused pain, the only way to get your money back, get your debt repaid, is to have the pleasure of hurting the person. Okay. Well, yeah. I, actually, I'm confusing this with a different section, which I don't even think is in this book, Okay, where he talks about different ways of striking back, that when you're, you're struck, you know, you could take it personally and try to get this vengeance, try to get them suffer, or you could just, I'm just striking back in a way to make them quit because it's just necessary in order for me to keep living yeah and he thinks there's you know there's nothing wrong about revenge in this second way but if, when you take it personally and you internalize it and it becomes this thing that eats away at you that it's yeah you know, it's part parcel of all this bad stuff he's talking about here yeah i feel pretty strongly that one of the things he's trying to say here is look if you have two aristocrats or two people that you know they know what what the rules of the game are and they're the ones who are empowered to go out and do things. So this is back in the day, right? This should remind us of Hobbes, you know, that, okay, we enter into this agreement and the legal system sort of slowly builds up around the idea of making sure to govern the fact that you and I as strong, free-willed individuals with all this virtue or all this morality, you know, Homeric- Self-proclaimed virtue. Self-proclaimed Homeric value can enter into this contract. And if I default, you're going to punish me and you're going to enjoy it and I'm not going to like it, but I'm going to understand it and it's all good to go. Now, imagine that we bring into bear that our legal system has to encompass the quote unquote weak or common man who cannot determine their own future, who is entering into 
debtor relationships without really having any clear vision. Well, it doesn't have the, the right, he says. It doesn't, doesn't have, have the right, right to enter into that. Yeah. Well, you're going to have to punish them, but you can't punish them with cruelty in the same way because they never should have been in this relationship to begin with. And I think that's where he's saying that suddenly society says, oh, shoot, we have to protect these people. So that you start changing the whole concept of punishment and legal system. And that's how this stuff all gets tied up and changes. And so I think you're right, Wes, you called me out on it's not resentment that does it. It's introducing that element of society into the legal system. But that only happens after the slave morality has become victorious or, you know, at least that the transformation begins. Well, I think what you're talking about now, that's section 10 um, of the second essay. So he says, as a community grows in power, it ceases to take the offense of the individual quite so seriously because they do not seem to be as dangerous and destabilizing. And that's where you start to get what he calls a compromise with the anger of those immediately affected by the wrongdoing. As the self-confidence of a community grows, its penal law becomes more lenient. If the former is weakened or endangered, harsher forms of the latter will reemerge. That passage that Wes just quoted, I used that. So near the end of that, it says, uh, it's not unthinkable that a society might attain mm-hmm. such a consciousness of power that it could allow itself the noblest luxury possible to it, letting those who harm it go unpunished. What are my parasites to me, it might say. May they live and mm-hmm. prosper. I'm strong enough for that. So the strength of a society is measured by how many parasites it can stand. Mm. And I, I like to quote that when conservatives get all worked up about people abusing welfare laws. It's and so true. Like, that. like, come on. This is such a minor annoyance on the budget and just get over I, it. It's so funny you say that. I think of this passage every time that those sorts of political issues come up. They see their desire to punish as an indication of strength, whereas Nietzsche is pointing out it's an indication of weakness. Yep. And such an obvious indication of insecurity. And so... <laughs> I'm going to bring a gun to Obama's speech because it's my right. Yes, liberals are pussies, but you need to, you feel a need to bring, to wear a gun everywhere. Okay. Send your hate mail to West. <laughs> I guess the connection between the two themes we haven't really pointed out, which maybe I'm getting this wrong. So the first theme of this was the gradual owing society, owing the gods, owing your ancestors things until this you know, gradual buildup of that over time, and how this actually relates to the punishment thing. Well, the point was, I, I thought that in this early establishing of punishment, it's not that it's the punished person who's really giving up something. It's the, the punisher, right? That in ordinary circumstances, if there's no society, the punisher would just go all, all out. But he's giving up and controlling his... Uh, desire to inflict punishment to only be within the bounds that society allowed. So like that is what he is sacrificing, one of his way of of paying back what is owed. So all the the creditor and the debtor are both paying society back in a certain way by going along with the the social contract there. Is that the connection? No. This is really tough. (laughs) Yeah. There's kind of a break. Like if you look at the second essay, sections one through 15 are all related to creditor, debtor, punishment, justice, kind of how justice transforms from between individuals or uh, agents to societies, which is, you know, parallels the Hobbes discussion. How do you go from a mutually agreed contract to the formal way of implementing law to overcome the state of nature? But then starting in section 16, he talks about bad conscience, which I 
think is related to this concept. The bridge concept here is guilt. The concept of punishment morphing into this idea that you're supposed to awaken a feeling of guilt. And in section 16, he says, I consider bad conscience the profound illness which human beings had to come down with under the pressure of that most fundamental of all the changes which they ever experienced the change when they finally found themselves locked within the confines of society and peace. So the connection yeah. here is maybe the whole concept of punishment and law and justice reflecting the state and society ultimately creates this illness called bad conscience, which was a necessary result of entering into society and peace. Exactly. Once you... Once you have people who are on the bottom of the totem pole, right? You know, you have the strong going out and shaping the state. And the weak, you know, there's nothing they can do with their desire for that pleasure of cruelty except to turn it inwards. And that's where you get the section 16 where he's talking about what essentially seems like Freudian repression, right? He's talking about it's not just instincts slaves, being right? internalized. It's and everybody. Everyone. Yes, this everybody. Everyone. Once you're locked. Yeah. Again, once you're locked and you're kept from going all out and, and uh, you know, limiting your violence to what society allows, this is damaging. And that only happens, by the way, if you just quick reference to section 12, in a democratic society. So if you're in a society that has hierarchies and aristocratic layer or is some sort of aristocracy or something like that, that's fine because it has rulers and those who need to be ruled. But democracy is hostile to everything which rules and wants to rule and is a hatred of rulers. So you create these institutions to govern behavior. And then what happens is people find themselves inside of this, neither being ruled nor doing ruling. And they turn inward on themselves and basically start chewing their own you know, spiritual leg off. Yeah, I think it can even be, in the beginning, it can be a tyranny. Because he does talk in 17. So a second assumption... However, is that the shaping of a population, which had up to now been unrestrained and shapeless into a fixed form, as happening at the beginning with an act of violence, could only be concluded with acts of violence. That consequently, the oldest state emerged as a terrible tyranny, as a repressive and ruthless machinery, and continued working until the raw material of people and semi-animals had been finally not just needed and made compliant, but shaped. So again, I, I, yeah, I think it's worth reiterating Mark's point, which is this is about the blonde beast. You know, it's hard to figure out what he means by these exactly because it's almost like they're unsocialized, right? Because it's the moment of socialization where you get all this repression, right? You get rules, you get the social contract, you get, yeah, the Hobbesian, you have to limit the rights that you have in nature. You're no longer are allowed simply to kill when you want to kill and so on and so forth. And that's where you get this bad conscience which is essentially having a conscience or feeling guilty when you do something bad. <laughs> so, or have urges that are bad. That have urges that you have to acceptable. check, and the only way they're checked is for society to tell you, you know, instead of getting your pound of flesh taken out afterwards, it's a preemptive strike. You know, you're going to feel too guilty to even do it in the first place. Well, is this partially an explanation for how slave morality could have taken over master morality? Because yeah. Right. When the master morality gets far enough, when it gets into Roman times, then, you know, we're getting a more liberal society, a more democratic people are, even if they're in the master class, they're still having to control themselves in a way that's going to give rise right. to this. And they're building up this guilt toward their ancestors, toward God. So in other words, the way in which our society is now is not just 
yep. to be explained by what happened in SA1. It's also to be explained by this thing in SA2 that's related to, but not identical to what they were describing in number one. Bad conscience is sort of a seed, which is what can be exploited by Rizantama, right? Rizantama is the reversal of values that allows the powerless to sort of psychologically get one over on the powerful. And they couldn't do it if it weren't for this sort of seed that's built into the social structure, which is bad conscience. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, unless you want to talk about SA3, I think that's enough to get us on to our limited discussion okay. of ethics proper. Screw ethics. <laughs> what? This was an ethics discussion? It's meta-ethics. <laughs> right? He's saying where these values that we have came from. Yeah. So that we find ourselves in this modern situation in which most of the ethical urges, the conscience that we have, is a matter of really this anti-life thing, right? He's got behind this. I know we've mentioned this a few times. But he sometimes uses as his ultimate psychological explanation this will to power. That, of course, the masters express their power all the time. They have this will to power. When it's sublimated among the slaves, when it's subverted inward, then they have to express it in a different way. So they express it through Rosantamont or through bad conscience, through whooping themselves. The third essay in here is about asceticism. If I can't show mastery over other people, I'll show mastery over myself. I will lead a very strict ascetic life and I will keep myself to a schedule. And that's destructive in the way that, you know, it's anti-life in a way. It's denying what's here for the taking, what we should be reaching out for. It's instead pulling in in an unhealthy way. But at the same time, it's still an expression of the will to power, mm -hmm. right? It's you controlling yourself. So in that sense, it's kind of cool, even though ultimately like, yeah, no, you should not become an ascetic and whip yourself. And like, that's all just sick. Uh, <laughs> and in... Subsequent books, like the beginning of the Antichrist, he really says straight up, what is good? The will to power, exerting power in all its ways. What is bad? Denying life, denying your will to power. He's not usually that blunt about it in other places. So again, we find ourselves at this late point in history with this mix of master and slave urges. I don't know, at some point, like he's got this chapter in Beyond Good and Evil called What is Noble? that he really just seems to be encouraging us to just act like the master as much as we can, you know, act like the modern version of that. Wait, where are you looking? For instance, number uh, 273 in the What is Noble, that's chapter nine of Beyond Good and Evil. Just picking sort of randomly, I remember just being kind of offended by this whole section in here. Uh, so section 273, for instance, a human being who strives for something, right? He likes greatness. You should be one of those people. Regards everybody he meets on his way as either a means or as a delay or an hindrance or as a temporary resting place. The lofty goodness towards his fellow men, which is proper to him, becomes possible only when he has reached his height and he rules. Impatience in his consciousness that until that time he is condemned to comedy, or even war is a comedy and concealment, just as every means conceals the end, spoil all his association with others. This kind of man knows solitude and what is most poisonous in it. So in other words, kind of like the societies, like what's really an admirable person, the kind of person that you would admire is like the powerful society that you can be generous to other people, but out of a sense of fullness of yourself. You could put up with the parasites and things because you have so much energy rolling off you. But until you get to that point, you know, it doesn't really make sense to exhibit those Christian virtues. Yeah. Go ahead. You know, you should be striving is sort of the important thing to yourself, right? An important notion here that he puts in a couple of texts, I don't think either of these is morality for him turns from thou shalt, right? That's a lot of ascribing responsibility to other people and trying to control other people to I will, figuring out just what, what am I going to do now? So if you find yourself full enough uh, and cheerful enough mm -hmm. to be generous and kind to people 
swell, but <laughs> you really should be sort of striving for greatness, at least if you're the kind of person that has it within you. And uh, if that means you're stepping on other people, really, you know, we should take something from the masters who saw it as their due that other people sacrifice themselves for him. Like, so he says this in various passages. And you can think of his, you know, as he's kind of an invalid and all these female relatives that he doesn't have any much respect for are going around serving him and uh, giving chunks of their life for him. They just, eh, I'm doing great work here. This is my due. <laughs> like, he really comes across as an ass. <laughs> I agree that his solution is unsatisfying, right? This Ubermensch idea. So say something First about the Ubermensch. It's, again, it's this fusion of the Apollonian and the Dionysian or of the philosopher and artist. It's a way of supposedly escaping slave morality and its negative effects. And I think it's never really explained fully enough. It seems to involve having to become some sort of genius of some kind. That's the problem with it. The elitism in it conflicts with my basic laziness. So, it's, it's overcoming your uh, sluggish nature and reaching toward greatness. Yeah. And if you don't really have it in you... You're so, screwed. So you should be striving toward greatness, but that's where the comedy is going to come from, that you'll be... Like someone with delusions of grandeur. Yeah, you know, people are going to laugh at you. You're going to come across as a doofus because there is something pathetic a little about right. what you're doing if it's not really in you. Talking about other people, he can dismiss other people like, yeah, some people are just born for slave morality. Eh, it suits them just fine. My writings are not for them. He even says, I'm going to go out of my way and say obnoxious things. Like, I'm going to have a style that will be forbidding and lock out certain people. Right. Which we saw, you know, something like that in Aristotle, you know, that till, you know, you're a mature and have self-control and had a good upbringing in the first place, then you're not going to be capable of being virtuous in this way. So, yeah, Nietzsche is seen as a virtue ethicist in the tradition of Aristotle. Yeah. But with a very subjectivist tinge. Well, it's the great sold man 2.0. It's a great sold man after you've gone through all this uh, intervening, corrupting slave morality. It's what you get out on the other side. It's not simply a return to the great sold man. There seems to be some kind of tension here. Nietzsche is complaining and struggling about the application of what is appropriate to societies or peoples or groups and a kind of sense of individual morality that he thinks gets suppressed by that. And that that's really what this is all about. And whether he thinks that there should be a separate set of rules for people who have this inner greatness or are striving for this inner greatness, or whether he just thinks that he's speaking to that group about, you need to go recognize that the herd mentality exists and rise above it. And here's how you defeat and overcome your own bad conscience or whatever to do that. That's kind of the way I see it. Yep. One of the uh, things that he uses, I think, in uh, Gay Science, he brings it up, and in Dostbekdarasustra, which I, I just want to see what you guys think of this, because Bob Solomon made a big deal about this as a, as a way of figuring out for Nietzsche what you should be doing is this uh, ideal of eternal recurrence. So it's a thought experiment. Like, imagine that when you finish your life, it's going to start all over again. And it's going to start all over again and again and again and again. So everything you do right now, before you take this step, do you really want to be doing this again and again and again? If not, maybe you shouldn't do that. So it's kind of like a seize the day kind of thing. And it's unclear from the context in which Nietzsche gives it really how much he cares about this or what he's doing with it. But let's just pretend that this is his view. I mean, what do you guys... Sounds like Kant's maxim, another a twist on... Yeah, it certainly does. Kantian maxim. Maybe. But it's, it's yeah. not objectivist. It's not imagine everybody doing it. It's subjectivist. It's do you yeah. really want to be doing this? 
you know, again, how, how my professors, Pritchard Bourbon, an undergrad, presented this to me is it's really about thinking, what kind of person do you really admire? And Nietzsche points out that what makes a great person is not the same as what makes a great roommate. <laughs> so like Mozart, if you've ever seen the movie Amadeus, just an amazing guy, but kind of a bastard. Like you wouldn't necessarily want to have this loud, obnoxious person as your roommate, but yet- Would you want to have Nietzsche, Nietzsche as a roommate? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Would not want to be- uh, it, yeah. I mean, another way he put it is that when you look at all valuation as moral valuation, it becomes one-dimensional, right? It, it means, so if a great, I think one of the examples he gave was uh, Tolstoy, or so it's one of these great writers, Russian writers, was also like a pedophile, like went out with his like 13-year-old sister or something. And we, we, you know, we face this now in terms of when artists that we admire do things like this. Like, well, how unbalanced do you judge them? And people who are, he thinks, place a little too much value on morality will just say, okay, well, that's a bad person. You did something obnoxious. You committed pedophilia. So we should just dismiss you. Whereas really, no, you know, okay. I don't like that aspect of what the person is, but that shouldn't yeah, diminish your admiration for the many <laughs> other wonderful things about it. So, so fine. Take Woody Allen as an example. Like, you know, don't dismiss Woody Allen because of his suspicious romantic life. Or another way to put it is it's more, it's a, like a system of weights that when you're valuing things, people just put too much emphasis on moral values. If you're trying to, I, I guess what it comes down to for me is that it doesn't even make sense to talk about mm -hmm. a good person. This is very not Nietzschean, of course, because he seems to have the idea of systems of rank and proclaiming yourself as awesome as part of nobility, at least historically. I'm not sure what to do with that in a modern way, but that, yeah, okay, there are some people that you want to be around, some people that you don't want to be around, some people you do not want to let near your daughter, some people that, that would be okay, uh, some people that would be boring to talk to, some people that are good swimmers, some people that are good. There's a multitude of different individual qualities that are perfectly valid to rate people on, but none of those amount to a full judgment of the person as a whole. So, you know, having high self-esteem or low self-esteem, like even since I was a teenager, those concepts didn't make any sense to me. Like, I don't judge myself in that way. I Feeling guilt goes in the same, oh, I did something bad. I'm a bad person. Like, that's kind of just irrational. <laughs> or at least your self-image should not be tied mm -hmm. to something like that. Not that you Promotes, deny what you've, yeah. you've been doing. You should try to be honest with yourself. Although, you know, Nietzsche seems to think that we have illusions that we need to live, right? And in fact, the value of a truth should be on how well it works for us, right? You know, Freud really loved that idea. Reactions? You've stunned me. So I have kind of a sanitized version of Nietzsche in my mind. I don't like this elitism that he has going. And I feel like that there's plenty of a humanistic, <laughs> ultra-skeptical, ultra-critical things you can take from Nietzsche that, that are kind of cool and repurpose these in a more liberal, happy way. <laughs> that if ultimately what he's going for is to make yourself this cheerful, full of energy, expansive, passionate person that is able to forget slights against him, like he has a lot of different virtues like this, then uh, I don't know. Do you need to put other people down to have that? But do you really think that's what he's saying? That you have to put people- Some of the time. Some of the time he's saying stuff like that. 
I mean, I just get the sense that he's sort of violently anti-democratic and anti-egalitarian, that he thinks that society suppresses the individual and he's trying to write this genealogy of how that happens from a moral perspective, you know, about morality, but and all this. And so he had this idea of true great individual spirits and individual people that could create great beauty, whether it was a work of art or a philosophical text or be a political leader, that they need to rise above this. And that he saw himself as one of these, these types of individuals. And he gives examples, right, of other kinds of individuals like Napoleon and Wagner for a time. And then he splits with Wagner. And he certainly has admiration for certain others. But all of this stuff is a way for him to, it's a call to action and it's kind of a description. I don't think he thinks that he's writing, you know, that somehow that this is a system of ethics or a new political society. I think he thinks he's speaking to some elite group of individuals and trying to awaken in them their sense of inner greatness and will to power to overcome this European herd mentality that's been thrust upon them. But he makes a point at times to say, but if you think that means being an anti-Semite or racist or whatever, you're missing the or point. Nationalist. Or nationalist. You're missing the point. Because you're st- in that case, instead of defining something out of your own inner greatness, like I will, you're defining yourself against an other. And that that's ultimately just some form of resentment. So be great, but be great from within. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, politically, he certainly wants nothing to do with politics. And in some places, he you know, is very critical of anybody that would actually spend their life worrying about politics, that like that in itself, it would be very, very deadening to the soul, he seems to think. But one of the things, like, you know, Fritjof Bergman, my professor that came out of that, at his big project, coming pretty much straight out of an analysis of Nietzsche and, and Hegel to some extent and what they think of human nature, was the political effort to restructure work. So actually Nietzsche says in a passage I ran across, I think it was in Human All to Human, anybody that does not have two thirds of his time to do with as he pleases is a slave. (laughs) (laughs) So put that together with his analysis of slave morality and we're pretty much all slaves. Like unless you have serious time to be whimsical and artistic and pursue greatness in the way that he had, having a full freaking paid life from his former employer and uh, being taken care of by his relatives. So Fritjof Bergman's reaction to this is, why don't we work as a national goal, as a world goal, to try to get a society in which people have more free time and can do this kind of thing and are not living lives of quiet desperation, as Thoreau put it, and that it's our jobs that, you know, our jobs should energize us, they shouldn't suck our energy, and I don't want to go any any further into that, but my point is you can get a political agenda of some sort out of Nietzsche, and that was clearly an effort to make Nietzsche more friendly, that Nietzsche seems to think that the reason it was possible for ancient Greeks to do this is because they had all these slaves running around doing all the work. So yeah, the warriors and the philosophers and stuff, they could strut their stuff, and we modern business people really don't have that option. Yeah, there's there's merit to that argument. So Nietzsche was like a fatalist about that, whereas Bergman said, hey, we have all this technology. We have all these labor-saving devices. They should be saving us some labor. We should should actually try to do that. Of course, you know what happens. Then there's always a new uh, standard of living that you aspire to. Yes. 
But we'll put that away for now. Hopefully, I, I want us to read uh, Bergman's On Being Free at some point, if you guys are up for that. Okay. It's super cool. Sounds good. Should we wrap this up? Yeah, I think I've said all I need to say. What about you guys? Yeah. Well, I think we've done as much as we can do to introduce what I think is the... The only thing we haven't really talked about is how we kind of tie this back to the Kant and Mill discussions, other than sort of calling out his sort of pointed comments that come up at various points. But, I mean, ultimately what he's saying is that Kant and Mill or Kant and the utilitarians are essentially just undertaking the same exercise, which is to try to justify... He essentially thinks they're trying to find a rational basis for Christian morality, right? Yep. I mean, ultimately, that's what it boils down to, and that the real work is right. to, to question that in itself rather than trying to justify it. Right. God is dead, and we have killed him, and yet all the atheists of his time have yet to figure out that that should also then get rid of Judeo-Christian morality, as Wes was saying before. Mm-hmm. And so specifically against... We should say a little bit about, so Kant is clearly just kidding himself with this, according to Nietzsche, reason just giving you the categorical imperative or something like that. But it seemed like that utilitarianism that we put forward was a little more from experience, right? So Nietzsche is ultimately some kind of an empiricist, not like a narrow, like I need to be able to define all my terms in terms of concrete experiences, not that kind of empiricist, but you should pay attention to the stuff you experience rather than looking at some otherworldly realm or Plato's forms or garbage like that, that those are all illusions of usually destructive kinds. And it seemed like utilitarianism was at least like analyzing people's happiness, right? It's like if you buy that formulation that I put forward of Nietzsche in terms of eternal recurrence, like what do I really want? What will really make me happy? And then morality is making everybody happy. So if you have a nice version of Nietzsche, wouldn't you then be a utilitarian, right? If you're, if you're trying to take Nietzsche and get rid of the uh, elitism that's in him. But he actually has a specific response to that, which is really just to contrast this idea of happiness as pleasure, right? This happiness narrowly conceived, like, like he thinks the utilitarian looks at it, and greatness. And I know Wes already talked this up a lot in our utilitarian episodes, so I won't say much more about that, but Right? There are lots of things that we are motivated to do and that if we really think about it, we want to do that have very little to do with happiness. And so he has this version as a contrast to the overman, the ubermensch that's supposed to be, like, be self-overcoming and strive toward greatness and all this stuff as of the last man, which is somebody that's, is, uh, I, we've discovered happiness and we're very peaceful and quite, so it's very Apollonian in the way we've described here. And those are just two different, you know, aesthetic takes. So I, I actually heard an interview recently. I was listening, looking at podcasts, and there's an interview with Richard Rorty. I know one of Wes's favorite philosophers. Ugh. He's a he's a modern, one of the most famous like modern continental philosophers, and he proclaims himself a quietist. Well, he's actually, I think he started out as an analytic philosopher, yes, yes. and he became a crossover. Yep, yeah, yep. So he wrote a book that was very critical of a lot of analytic philosophy, or at least it was interpreted that way. Mind in the mirror of nature, right? Yeah, and, but earlier on, he was like a linguistic. Yeah, philosophy. and so so, he, yeah, so you, of, Wittgenstein, you can see would would be an influence on this guy, and he proclaimed right, himself in this right. interview a quietist, which is somebody who is like you know the logical positivists we were talking about in the Wittgenstein episode in the second one uh, that think that eh, there's not really anything you can say about the big philosophical problems. Maybe we should just shut up about that kind of stuff. But in any case, he put forward sort of in, in talking about what political future should we be striving for 
And he said, there's no way really to argue against you know, the Nietzscheist who says, ah, strife is okay. We should set ourselves up in a harsh world so we can, the, the few can <laughs> attain greatness, as opposed to the utilitarian like, let's just try to make everything as nice and peaceful for people as possible. And, you know, they'll rise to the occasion and, you know, exert their, do what they want to do. Like, shouldn't we just make everything maximally free and liberal? And, and, uh, and so he came down, even though he's very much a Nietzschean and continental, you know, guys descended from Nietzsche in, in, in spirit and a lot of his uh, views as an ethicist came down pretty strictly on the utilitarian side. And I guess when I think about it, the way he put it, I agree. Like, even though I personally, yeah, yeah, greatness is great. Like, I, I want a nice house. I need a certain level of comfort to be great, <laughs> right? <laughs> I want a balance. I want, a, I want the, exactly. uh, I don't want a f- the temperate. I want the mean, you know, the mean between. Uh, yep. But no, I think, though, with, with Nietzsche, there's an even more serious predicament. And I think this is the stronger anti-utilitarian argument, which is that because of people's instincts, being happy or in his sense flourishing or, or really embracing the will to life let's say involves inflicting pain and cruelty on other people it involves this will to power and there is no utilitarian solution that does anything but creates a cure which is worse than the sickness to use Nietzsche's words can't we just play soccer or if we're geeky halo and wail on people that way and get our competitive yaws out that way as opposed to actually hurting people I don't think those are substitutes for going out and and actually killing people. I mean, I think it's, uh, of course, obviously he's not advocating a return to going out and killing people. We're stuck with the predicament of society. We're not returning to the Hobbesian state of nature, and that's not the argument. But another book to read that's to which this is sort of the precursor is Freud's civilization and its discontents. And the idea, and I, I think in Freud and in Nietzsche, is that you're screwed. Once you're civilized, you're kind of screwed. <laughs> Because you're already going to have bad conscience. You're going to feel guilty. You're going to have the superego bearing down on you and saying you can't do this and that. What Hobbes made out to be this cold contractual thing, okay, let's agree not to hurt each other. Well, no, there are consequences to that. That right to hurt someone isn't just some freewheeling choice. It's an instinct, which when you curtail it, there are psychological consequences. But I think for Nietzsche, there is an escape from the worse manifestation of all that, which is Rizantamah. But I, you know, like you, I don't think that's doable. I just don't. It's a really disappointing. It's where I think the experiment in adolescent iconoclasm fails. It's great to, you know, in high school when you think you're going to be the king of the world, when you think you're going to conquer all and be rich and famous. That's great. That's a great attitude. But in the end, we all have to settle down and live our lives. There are six billion people on the planet, and we're not going to be ubermensch. So that to me is a. You know, I've always been disappointed with Nietzsche's solution. I love his criticisms, but I've never seen any solution to the predicament. I think it is just the human predicament. What do you think, Seth? Ah, This is frustrating. I am sympathetic to the idea that mass culture, mass consumer culture, and all that sort of stifles sort of individual greatness. But the idea that you can create two different sets of morals or that you can have different sets of rules that apply to different people, at least structurally, doesn't work for me. You know, that being said, if smart, interesting, genius people want to try to get other people to find their inner genius and creativity, and 100 people respond and 95 of them 
turn out not to have it in them and are buffoons that come across being comic, but we get five satanic verses or to kill a mockingbirds or critiques of pure reason out of it, I guess that's okay. I struggle though with the point you made, Mark, you know, around how much obnoxious behavior can you tolerate out of a truly superior person? Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I would just sort of say, well, let's separate the product of their labors from them. Yeah. You know, Picasso was clearly a, a hound and Hemingway, you know, all these guys, they all rub people the wrong way and, and generate a lot of ill will. But if the legacy they leave to humankind is significant, we don't forgive them. We just sort of accept the result, celebrate the legacy, and not, if not the person. Because it's not a fact that being an obnoxious prick is what enabled them to create. It's a personality right. disorder. There are plenty of really nice people that created great works, too. So genius doesn't necessarily make you a prick. Did you know uh, Joseph Mengele produced uh, some delightful macrame? That's all I'm told. Yeah. Well, are you, are you implying that he was a genius or just a I, sadistic? I'm just saying bullshit yeah. to finish off the episode. <laughs> <All right. laughs> you are saying bullshit, that's for sure. <laughs> Next time, we're going to take a little left turn, but I think it's a, a guy that speaks in kind of the same, is it ethics? Is it just wisdom? We're going to read some actual non-Western philosophy. Some of uh, the... <laughs> <laughs> some Taoism, specifically the Chuang Tzu from China. The work is called the Chuang Tzu, and the assumption is that a guy named Chuang Tzu wrote it, though it's far enough back in history that nobody is really sure of that, and it could have been multiple authors. And it but in any case, it's a pretty amusing one. Uh, we're going to read uh, sections two, three... 18 and 19. We'll have some more uh, suggestions if you finish those and want to read a little more. So take a look on the website, partiallyexaminedlife.com and participate in our Facebook discussion group. Buy a t-shirt. Sacrifice things to us. There are probably other ways you could, <laughs> you could participate. You can post responses to things people said on the blog itself. Well, we really appreciate all the folks that have been very supportive and, uh, and we love you! Not you. <laughs> All right. Wrap it up. Good night. Good night. The end. Good night. Self-deception, glaring, obvious inconsistency, down a general non
with fear and anti-intellectualism 